As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, I was in New York with you in early September, wasn't I? We did the Odd Lots live show. That was early September. <laughs> that Yes, I think it was. That already seems like a really long time ago to me. But yeah, that was really fun. And we had a great, a great yeah. lineup of guests. And it was it was just it was absolutely perfect. <laughs> I wouldn't have changed one thing about the uh, lineup of guests that we had then. There was one thing that I would have changed, which is that uh, we were due to have Zoltan Pozar on one of the panels. And unfortunately, he had to drop out uh, a couple days before for a a sort of last minute commitment. But the reason it would have been great to have him there was because something big happened in the markets that same week. Right. So I was just trolling a little bit. I agree with you. That would have been the one change. That would have been the one thing that would have made it absolutely perfect. And of course, what you're referring to was the tantrum, or I'm not sure what what word we're using to describe it, but the sort of uh, craziness. Repo madness. The repo madness of uh, early September was right around that time. And of course, uh, Zoltan is by many people considered to be the uh, preeminent expert uh, in this area. Right. Also a former Odd Lots guest. And I should just back into this uh, a little bit. So Zoltan Pozar, a former advisor to the U.S. Treasury Department, now a strategist at Credit Suisse. And he's been writing a lot about the repo market. In fact, you know, just four or so weeks before we had that repo madness incident, and this was where short term borrowing rates in the money market suddenly surged. Uh, Four weeks before that actually happened, Zoltan had been writing, again, some eerily prophetic things. Like he actually wrote in a piece of August research that the funding pressures that Credit Suisse is forecasting include overnight general collateral repo rates drifting outside the Fed's target band. And that is exactly what happened in September. I remember, and I'm not just saying this because he's here in studio and we're about to talk to him, but I remember (laughs) even before I noticed, I remember the day that the rates shot up, I didn't even notice it until some, uh, a trader at a bank IB'd me uh, on my Bloomberg and said, are you watching what's going on in the repo market? It's exactly what uh, Zoltan predicted. And that was the first, then I like went and looked. That was my first uh, my first uh, indication that something was amiss, someone alerting me in that way. That's how, that's how closely his research is uh, tied to what we've seen in people's minds in the market. Yeah, uh, Zoltan is at one with the <laughs> repo market and uh, money market crunches. 
Uh, again, just to provide a bit of background, so what we actually saw on that day was repo rates, uh, the, the cost basically of making secured overnight collateralized loans. Those repo rates jumped from, I think it was about 2% to something like 10%. And lots of people had talked about the possibility of a funding squeeze, especially around quarter ends, which is where we get these sort of traditional crunch points in the financial systems because big banks have to pull back on their repo financing ahead of uh, quarterly liquidity requirements and other regulations. But far, far fewer people had expected it to happen at this sort of random juncture in time, this slightly random week in September. Uh, so again, it, it was really unusual. It spooked quite a few people and everyone immediately said, we must speak to Zoltan Pozar. Absolutely. And it's important to remember, too, that when people see this stuff, everyone has sort of still after all these years post-crisis PTSD and you look at bank overnight funding costs and they're soaring from 2 percent to 10 percent in a day. And of course, a big debate immediately broke out. Is this something strictly about financial market plumbing or is there something deeper and more systemic at play that sort of speaks to some inherent frailty of the uh, financial system? And obviously, things have quieted down quite a bit since then. But nonetheless, I think, uh, you know, there's still people are still unsettled and no one really knows what the ultimate uh, fix is going to be. The Fed has applied temporary fixes, uh, greater expanding its uh, supply of reserves uh, to or overnight uh, operations to satisfy the uh, bank demand for this short-term liquidity. Uh, but no one really knows where this is ultimately headed, it seems. Right. So I'd say it's actually debatable whether or not things have calmed down in the repo market. But why don't we just jump straight into the discussion uh, with Zoltan and we'll be able to get into all of these really, really interesting and fascinating questions. Let's so do it. Zoltan Posar, thank you so much for coming on yet again. Very nice to be here. So let's start off with uh, that week in September. Presumably, you're sat in Credit Suisse, maybe uh, watching overnight market rates as you do. What are you thinking when you start to see the repo rate uh, jump like it did? Well, actually, I wasn't in Credit Suisse the day of this happening. I was actually traveling down to DC to see some clients with one of our sales guys. And you know, we saw the markets open up and we were chatting in the cafe cars and okay, well, Monday wasn't good. Tuesday is shaping up to be worse. And I'm not kidding. Five minutes into that train ride, the train broke down <laughs> and we were basically told to have to get off the train and there's going to be another train coming. You had to call the client that sir, but the train is running late. And then the Fed announced the repo operations, but then the Fed was late with the first operation due to technical glitches. And I looked at Phil, the sales guy, and I told him, look, I mean, the country is funding itself overnight in the repo market. The trains don't run. And the Fed can't even do an operation on time. It has to be a, has to be a joke or some, of some sorts. But um, the September blowout was, you know, took many people by surprise. Um, I think a lot of people focus on what happened and they kind of look for the trigger that yeah. triggered it on that day. And I think that's actually the wrong question and the wrong thing to focus on. The September blowout in the repo market was a long time in the making. What it had to do with is basically taper. And taper was just very slow burning process where it 
you know, the Fed took more and more reserves out of the system. Right. And when the, when the system ran out of liquidity, which in this specific case means, you know, reserves that the system can settle with. Right. You know, the moment you ran out, ran out of those reserves, the repo market seized up. So this was basically a $600 billion process, which is how much the Fed tapered. The, the one thing that was very important to watch is basically look at uh, who are the most reserves-rich banks. Right. How much reserves they have lost as the Fed was tapering the balance sheet. And what is the body language of bank CEOs and bank CFOs and when you listen to them during uh, earnings calls as to what is the minimum number of reserves that they need to hold from a business perspective. You know, the largest bank that held the most amount of reserves, uh, JP Morgan, during this taper process has gone from having $350 billion of reserves at the Fed to $120 billion as of the end of the second quarter of hmm. this year. And so when you saw that number, you knew that the bank that was always the lender of next to last resort in the repo market basically ran out of money. So let's back up just for people that maybe aren't as familiar with some of the terminology or even the structure of the banking system in the hopes that they can understand this topic. When you or I have our money held at a bank, we have a deposit, the reserves are essentially where banks deposit their money at the Fed. Mm -hmm. And the there's a fixed amount of reserves available. Mm -hmm. And that greatly expanded during the financial crisis thanks to quantitative easing, essentially the Fed going out and buying safe assets like treasuries or mortgage-backed securities with reserves. And then it was starting to shrink them as, as part of the taper process. And essentially what uh, happened or what's going on is the shrinking of the balance sheet collided with regulatory requirements on banks to hold a certain yes. amount of reserves at the Fed. So explain this sort of collision okay. of d arguably different arms of the government make, imposing different demands on the okay, banking so, system. So let's, uh, let's start with um, two observations. Number one, you know, the payment system used to be, used to be, it no longer is, it used to be a credit system, which basically means that pre-crisis, you know, when banks make payments between each other mm -hmm. and they transfer money from one bank's reserve account to another bank's reserve account, you know, it used to be the case that banks could go into a negative balance in their reserve accounts at the Fed. So that's the whole intraday credit provision that the Fed used to provide to the system, which basically ensured that payments between banks never bounce. Mm. Okay, if there's not enough money in your reserve account, the Fed is going to put in the right amount of money so that payments can settle. And then that intraday credit provision by the Fed gets pushed into the overnight markets and used to be the overnight Fed funds market. And that's the way the banks settled uh, those claims uh, at night. Post-crisis and post-Basel III, there is no bank that is ever going to use intraday credit from the Fed. Because if you were to use intraday credit, it means that you are in severe breach of your liquidity coverage ratio, all your intraday uh, liquidity requirements and all that stuff. So. Quite literally, post Basel III, the system settles with the amount of reserves that are mm. in the system. So there's nobody who's taking cash from the Fed uh, on the margin. Then you look at the amount of reserves that are in the system, the distribution of those reserves uh, is not equal. Some banks hold more, some banks hold less. But basically, the banks that have the abundance of reserves, 
know, the reserves-rich banks, they are the ones that are lending into the system settlement process on the margin. So in English, you went from the Fed adding liquidity into the system on the margin so that payments can settle mm-hmm. to, and this is no secret, um, because I've been writing about this all the time, to JP Morgan basically using its HQLA portfolio to take their excess liquidity. That's and high quality liquid assets. High quality liquid assets. Again, most of which two years ago was reserves, taking that money and lending it into the repo market or whichever corner of the funding market such that payments can happen. Okay. So basically, you went from the Fed providing intraday liquidity in the system yeah. to JP Morgan and other reserve rich banks. But again, JP Morgan is the largest example providing intraday credit uh, in the system on the margin. So what has happened is that as you tapered the balance sheet, you basically took reserves away from the system. Quite literally, you basically forced uh, these large reserves rich banks to trade out of reserves. And there's collateral coming in, cash being taken out. On top of it, the Fed is basically cutting the interest on reserves rate, trying to encourage all these reserves rich banks to let go of their reserves and reverse in more collateral by treasuries. And by, by that process, they are forcing a redistribution of reserves across the system. But as they were forcing that change, they basically uh, flattened the distribution of reserves. They basically um, forced the large bank to spend their reserves such that repo trades normal on any given day. But then basically the flip side of that was that they exposed the system to very bad days in the repo market on tough days when a lot of money has to move. We'll come back to that in a second. Right. And on quarter ends and on year ends. So a lot of people, I, just on the reserve point then, Sultan, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people have been debating the language around this. Is it a scarcity of bank reserves or a shortage? And why does the difference between the two actually matter? I don't think there's a difference. I mean, it's a shortage. I, basically, what I'm saying is that that the system ran out of tokens mm-hmm. to settle with, right? Because mm-hmm. again, back to the earlier point, the Fed was always ready in the past to add reserves into the system on the margin intraday as needed, okay? So it was never possible to run out of reserves. But in this regime where the Fed had X amount of reserves in the system and nobody is going to take credit from the Fed, you literally the system literally settles with the amount of reserves that are in the system. So if the, the bank that it has the access and is lending into, into the system on the margin runs out of that money, runs out of reserves, the system literally f- seizes up because you run out of tokens. What was the regulatory logic? As you mentioned, the Basel III requirements, what is the regulatory logic of no longer wanting the banks to be able to essentially have overdraft capabilities or use overdraft capabilities at the Fed? I don't think that there is a, a piece of regulation that says, you know, don't take it, or the Fed never said that I will never give it. I think it's just, you know, if, if every bank has to, like the LCR, for example, the yeah. liquidity coverage ratio tells that every bank has to pre-fund 30 days worth of outflows. Right. Okay, so every bank is going to be 30 days pre-funded. Okay, so no one is going to be in the funding markets to kind of get the liquidity to be able to settle, okay? And this is actually a very important uh, question you're asking, right? So the banks don't have a liquidity problem here, right? All that has happened is that, you know, the banks have been the marginal lenders 
into the repo market. Mm -hmm. So the entities that ended up with a liquidity problem were the dealers. But basically for the past year, it were the banks that were the marginal lenders in the repo market. But the banks are only going to lend into the repo market on the margin until they reach a limit in terms of how much reserves they have to hold at the Fed and below which they are unwilling to go. Okay, so this was basically a liquidity problem for the dealer community. Okay. And the, the, the problem at a higher level was that the banks, despite having the liquidity, were unable to lend more into the repo market because if they were to be lending more, they would breach their intraday liquidity requirements. It's just, it's just one of those unintended consequences where, it's just one of the unintended consequences of the rules where, where everybody right. basically wants to show you know, how much liquidity they have to the Fed and they are unwilling to go below that because then there is regulatory scrutiny to pay. So just to step back uh, for a second, because this question comes up quite a lot, but if you're not in the money markets, uh, sort of in, in the weeds of a lot of this, why should you care about what happened to the repo market in September? And I mentioned, you know, for instance, the effective federal funds rate getting pulled up along with repo rates. Is that the big sort of takeaway from this, that the Fed sort of briefly lost control of money market rates or monetary policy or however you want to put it. I don't know. I think it's I think it's something far bigger. So why does this matter? You know, it's an overnight rate. Yeah. I tweeted by the way, I said, what should we ask a Zoltan? Now that was this was by far the most common question. It's like it's interesting, but why should we care? So repo is how you get to live to fight another day. Okay. So that's not my meme that's you know coming from Perry Merling. Yeah. But again Repo is how you get to live to fight another day. It's very important. What that means is you go to the overnight repo market because you run out of money. You can't make payments today, payments that are due today. So on the margin, you go and try to get some money so that you can make a payment today and you pay that money back tomorrow to someone. If you can't borrow in the repo market and you can't get the cash to make your payments today, you're not going to open up tomorrow. Okay, so if you are an RV fund that needs to roll funding on its position, if you are a primary dealer and you can't fund to roll your positions and top up your uh, clearing account at, at your clearing bank, if you're a small dealer that can't fund, you're out of business tomorrow. So that is why you basically care about this stuff. You know, it's like when you look at an electrocardiogram, and the heart ticks, you know, it ticks, 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 and it doesn't tick, and it starts to beep. So it's something like right. that. It either ticks or it doesn't tick. So it's existential. You know, when you see these rates at 10%, it means that people are having a hard time getting the money to make payments. U.S. Treasury is having a hard time pumping treasuries into the system on settlement days. You know, the money is not moving to the Treasury general account because people are not willing to part with their money. In this case, the large banks right. run out of reserves. So the money ain't going to the U.S. Treasury. So quite frankly, you know, if you need to pay unemployment insurance benefits and food stamps and all that stuff, the funding of that stuff process gets gummed up. So this is, this is, this is serious stuff. And you know, the reason why the Fed responds to these things quickly, I mean, they could have responded quicker, but the reason why they respond to it quickly is because you know, they just recognize the nature of these overnight markets where the money doesn't flow People can't pay and people can't pay. They go out of business. Headlines can happen, right? You know, the, the, the good thing was that, you know, 
this dislocation didn't last for more than a day. If these dislocations go on for two days, three days a week, it can turn into an existential problem for a lot of people. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So an, another thing that I've been wondering, uh, just on the idea of the Fed having to come in and sort of swoop in and fix this problem as soon as possible, although, as you point out, it could have been faster and they did have technical difficulties when they first tried to do it. How much of the confusion or the fact that repo rates actually got to 10%, how much of that do you think had to do with Simon Potter having recently left the New York Fed? Oh, and also, actually, I've always wondered this, but do you ever talk to the Fed about these issues? Do, do they you know, talk to you about your thoughts on this? For the record, in five years, I've seen them once. Hmm. Uh, two years ago, it was. And the other question, I don't think so. I think, I think again, it's, uh, you know, I guess the, 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 the message would be that, you know, taper, I guess, was a mistake. So the difference between the repo market printing normally, like it has been for the past five years, versus the repo market falling apart on December 31st of last year, uh, early September this year, is basically those $600 billion of reserves that were taken out of the system by taper. So if you look at the usage of the reverse repo facility, the other repo facility, right? You know, that's the facility where money goes when that money is not needed because there's not enough collateral, people don't have the balance sheet, there's not enough arbitrage opportunities. So nobody takes the money from the money funds and then the money funds put it at the Fed and that money goes there to die. It is very important to, to kind of realize that taper started when the usage of that facility was zero. That means that, you know, lazy cash in the system was already gone when taper started. So all these, you know, taper and increase in treasuries, cash balances, the increase in the foreign repo pool was basically taking money out of bank HQLA portfolios, which are liquidity portfolios of the banks. And it was taking reserves out of the portfolios of JP Morgan and all the other large American banks. So basically, you know, in English, that means that Taper was taking the liquidity buffer yeah. away from the system that basically ensured that these large banks have the extra cash to lend into periodic dislocations in the repo market and in the FX swap market and all, all sorts of other uh, uh, markets. So the fact that we engineered Taper and we tapered as much as fast as we did without the safety valve built into the process where 
if God forbid we take out too much reserves, we should have a facility to kind of put as much liquidity back into the system as 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 needed, right? And let that the usage of that facility speak loud that taper should stop. We didn't do that. So back to your other question, I think the problem is that we tapered this much this fast. So it was kind of a architectural mistake. So personnel changes, I would say, have nothing to do with, you know, the, 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 the blowout and the response to that blowout the day of. I think it has to do more with why did we end up in this position in the first place? And by the way, when you, when you listen to, to the Fed throughout the, the whole taper episode, you know, when you read those speeches, the indicators that the Fed was looking at to see if things are getting tight or if we should stop taper were the wrong right. things to look at. The Fed was looking for banks' use of intraday credit for, for signs of stress to show up. You know, earlier on in the conversation, we said that there is no bank that is ever going to use intraday credit from the Fed post Basel III because it's not worth the reputational risk. Nobody wants to be the first one to use it. Nobody wants to be the first one to max out the, the lines. And if people were to use it, you know, no one's going to be willing to kind of let those things faster and be rolled into the, uh, 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 the discount window. So basically, I think, I think you had the wrong things they were looking at and, and they, they, they tapered way too much, way too fast, and they put the system into a precarious position. And again, the conditions for what happened in the repo market in September were building over time as they were shrinking the balance sheet. So it's almost like a wildfire where you have all these dry leaves accumulate and then something bad happens and then the wildfire gets really bad because, because the dry leaves accumulated over the, over the time. You mentioned something there that speaks to the last time you uh, appeared on our show, and that relates to the role of a foreign participant in the market. We just did an episode actually with Brad Setzer in which we talked about Taiwanese life insurers and their thirst for uh, dollar-denominated assets. Uh, I think it was what we talked about. I think it was back in April or May was the last time we talked to you. And it was kind of about this topic and that as rates on dollar-denominated assets, particularly treasuries, were coming down, there was less appeal to hold uh, U.S. government debt and that it made more sense for uh, foreign buyers to essentially just have money at the Federal Reserve and leaving all these treasuries on the uh, dealer balance sheets. Talk to us about this aspect of the repo crunch. How much of it is essentially a result of what you were talking about uh, when we talked to you in the spring about the fact that normally these uh, foreign buyers would be in the government bond market, but when rates got too low, it just didn't make any sense. So why not just hold the money right at the Fed, exacerbating the, uh, uh, the reserve shortage? Yeah, so, you know, rate gets too low. And the other important thing is that the curve inverted, right? Yeah. So that's what we talked about last time. It has a lot to do with it, right? Because if you think about what the world used to look like two, three years ago when Japan and Taiwan and, and all those Asian accounts were buying more. I mean, they're still buying, but not yeah. as much and definitely not enough relative to supply. The theme in the money markets back then was that you know, Asia, Asia is buying. They have to hedge it back to yen and you know, to euros and other currencies. And they typically do that at the three-month point. So you know, buy a 10-year treasury, you hedge it back uh, and roll those hedges every three months. So that's a pressure on three-month funding costs. Now, LIBOR uh, widened 60 basis points uh, around money fund reform, which also uh, coincided with that 
with that time in markets. Cross-currency basis between yen and dollars widened as much as 100 basis points. And very interestingly, the Fed didn't care one bit about the so-called ois-ois basis blowing out to 100 basis points between yen and dollars. I'm in English, but that means basically that parity between term funding onshore and term dollar funding in Tokyo completely broke down. You know, so people in Tokyo were paying 100 basis points over for dollars at the three-month point than people onshore here in New York. Hmm. That was kind of a big deal, but you had no speeches about it, no blogs, no papers, no nothing. You know, when three-month funding costs are stressed in the FX swap market, right, as a dealer, you can lend into that demand by borrowing uh, in, uh, at the three-month point also in the FX swap market, in unsecured markets, secured markets. Or you can borrow not at the three-month point, but at the one-month point, the one-week point, the overnight point. So the point here is that, you know, the, the dominant bit for funding is at the three-month point. The funding of that, of that borrowing need yeah. can be distributed along a three-month stretch in money markets, going from overnights to three months. So overnight markets are going to kind of feel this stuff, but only a part of it, a little part of it. When the curve gets inverted, okay, and as we discussed last time, all the carry traders get knocked away on the margin. So the foreign hedge buyer is not buying as much. The foreign banks are not buying as much. The RV hedge funds can't buy as much. There's one group of entities that has to buy by law. Those are the primary dealers. So the dealers started to back up with inventory. But the dealers are in the moving business. They are not in the carry business. So a dealer is never going to term fund its inventory. Uh, they tend to fund it overnight and roll it overnight. And here's the important point. When a dealer is the marginal buyer of treasuries and they fund things overnight, the only way you can fund that overnight funding demand is overnight. You can't, you, you can't go anywhere. I mean, you're not going to you know, fund an overnight funding demand with like the three-month point because you know, if the Fed cuts, then you're in a bad position. So everything over the past year in fixed income markets, in money markets, was funded at the overnight point. And that's a dangerous situation because if the money doesn't come in, but it goes out, maybe because there's a large settlement day, maybe because there's a tax payment day, you know, once the money goes away, you literally hit an air pocket. Okay? And if there's no one to lend into that air pocket, you have a problem. And the Fed cares deeply about where overnight rates print. So the overnight rates breaking down and those spreads widening out massively is a far bigger deal than three-month cross-currency basis blowing out to 100 basis points. You know, the inversion, dealers becoming the last bid for treasuries, everything happening overnight, which is the Fed's sensitive point, um, has a lot to do with, uh, with everything that happened. There's quite a lot of irony in this when you think about a lot of those um, post-crisis liquidity rules were basically aimed at taking, at improving fragilities in the repo market, right? And like strengthening the overnight funding market. And instead, you seem to have ended up with a slightly opposite situation. Well, you, you know, you ended up in a slightly opposite situation because I think the other, the other important thing that people tend to overlook is that uh, the repo market has grown tremendously this year. Is that because of treasury issuance or something else? Well, partly treasury issuance, but also the growth of sponsored repo. Right. Sponsored repo for those who don't live in the front end is basically uh, a new... Including me, I, I don't know it. 
Okay, so let's educate Joe a little bit here. Thank you. So sponsored repo is is a new way of of doing repo in that. Okay, so there's basically three banks for now uh, that have the ability to do sponsored repo. And these are State Street, Boney, and J.P. Morgan. Sponsored repo. The the idea is basically to let well capitalized member banks. There's not dealers for now. Banks of FICC to sponsor in money funds and sponsor in hedge funds into the repo market such that mm. when you sponsor these entities in and you let them face off against each other through a matched book that you provide, um, you can net these positions so they don't use balance sheet. Okay, so this is basically uh, a way for, uh, for the system to provide more balance sheet and more liquidity into the repo market without using balance sheet because balance sheet constraints is one of those things that that Basel III is, uh, is constraining. So all this treasury collateral coming into the system um, has for the most part been funded in the sponsored repo market. Sponsored repo at the moment is only available on an overnight basis. So if you were an RV fund, or if you were whoever and you needed balance sheet in the repo RV market, relative the relative value, value fund, right? Well, and if you needed balance sheet in the repo market, it was only available to you overnight because term term trades are not available not available in the sponsored repo space uh, just yet. You know, in addition to the things we discussed before, that dealers got backed up with the paper, they had to fund it overnight. It was also the case that the relative value hedge funds and whoever you know uses repo to, to fund treasuries could only do that overnight. So this this kind of new new piece of the market sponsored repo which has grown to something like 300 billion dollars in size also was a part of priming this, the 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 system for a accident because again if the money doesn't come in because it has to go someplace else then basically a lot of long positions that are funded overnight uh can't get rolled and that's precisely how you can end up with uh with repo rates going from normal to 10 percent the next day and I want to get soon to the sort of how ultimately the Fed fixes this structural plumbing, what have you, issue. But before we do, I just want to go back to one key question that I recall coming up in the immediate wake of the repo madness. The bank, the big banks like J.P. Morgan, did they still have, technically speaking, excess reserves beyond their uh, li- liquidity requirements? The banks had reserves? Yeah. But those reserves were by no means excess. Okay. And this is and this is what people tend to get lost on, right? So it is perfectly possible for the largest US banks to sit on a hundred plus billion dollars of reserves in their reserve accounts. And it's perfectly understandable why they don't lend this was the those question. reserves, right? Because they need those reserves to satisfy their intraday liquidity requirements. They need those reserves to be able to pass their resolution stress tests, things like that. Okay, so again, when you when you go to a bank that had three hundred billion two years ago down to a hundred, and it wouldn't lend more in the repo market, the two hundred billion was the excess, and all of that was spent, and whatever is left is not there to be played with. You know, if you think about these reserves as high-powered money, yeah, that hundred billion that's there, that ain't high-powered money. That's dry powder that has to sit there and you can't use it. You know, the, the two weeks before the repo blowout, I've seen, um, I mean, they are all clients of Credit Suisse, the bank portfolios. 
I've seen four of the largest bank portfolios. And you talk to the, the CIOs that run these portfolios, they will tell you that I would like to earn more with my cash. I would like to harvest the yields in treasury markets. I would like to harvest you know, yields in the GC market, but I can't. And currently I'm making uneconomic decisions with my reserves because I need to hold those for regulatory purposes. So that is basically the environment in right. which uh, we are getting closer to this, uh, to this repo blowout. A lot of people you know, point their fingers at the bank saying, you know, they were the ones who caused it because they have so much at the Fed. Why didn't they lend more? There is nothing that a bank would like to do more than to earn a 10% yield by moving all right. their cash into an overnight market and get that money back tomorrow and yeah. make 10%. So the fact that you have these yields has to do with just banks' inability to lend, not their willingness to lend. Right. So this is sort of what I was getting at with these scarcity versus shortage of reserves earlier. There's this big arbitrage available in the market, free money, basically, but the banks can't come in and do it. So just getting to solutions to this problem, we've seen the Fed uh, increase overnight liquidity operations and also announce that um, I think it's going to buy up to six. Was it 60 billion of T-bills or mm -hmm. did they increase it recently? 60 billion a month. Yeah. 60 billion a month of T-bills. And yet uh, there have been a couple of times this month where we have seen repo rates start to creep up again. And we've seen some analysts at the sell side, uh, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America Merrill Lynch, also saying that they think the Fed hasn't done enough to solve the market problem. So what exactly is it that the Fed needs to do and how big of a sort of problem in the repo market remains? So I agree with uh, uh, the strategists at uh, JP Morgan and Bank of America. I, I think as well that the Fed has not done enough. What we have is good for now, but it's not a structural fix. You know, there's a big difference between, you know, a liquidity problem and a liquidity problem and a balance sheet problem. Okay, so, you know, in September, we had a liquidity problem because the system ran out of reserves, you know, the tokens you settle with. So the, the only thing the Fed had to do is just pump in reserves on a margin. Uh, you know, the, the big uh, event that's coming up is the year-end turn. And during year-end, no one is going to have the balance sheet to move money around. So, you know, what, what I'm trying to say with that is, you know, it's okay that the Fed has a repo facility. Uh, and for as long as there are primary dealers that are willing to take liquidity from that facility and broadcast that liquidity to the rest of the system, to the hedge funds and little dealers and, uh, and whoever needs that money, uh, the facility works. But once the primary dealers have a balance sheet constraint, and they won't be the intermediary between the Fed and the rest of the system. It doesn't matter how much the Fed wants to put liquidity into the system with that repo facility. There's not going to be a mechanism through which they can inject that, uh, that liquidity into the system. So like a very weird analogy here would be that, you know, if I'd like to play tennis, but I don't have membership at the country club, you do, Joe. Yeah. Um, you know, I can go in with you. It would be the exact opposite in real life. but Well, <laughs> right. But if you're out taking a hike, there's no tennis for me because my friend who's right. got membership right. to the country club, you know, cannot get me in. So you basically need someone to hold your hand hmm. to get that liquidity. And during year end, 
no one has the balance sheet and no one has the the ability to be you know to be the good Samaritan who's going to take the liquidity from the Fed and give it to you. So again, we we've hit on this, but just to make it clear, you know, quarter and year end are important because a regulator there's a snapshot taken of the bank's financials and it's literally on that day that uh, the regulators take a look at the books and everyone it's like kind of cleaning your room before your parents get home and something like something that. like that. So what is the solution then such that we can avoid having these uh, problems pop up every time that the uh, you know, the parents come home to check out the check out whether the room is cleaned. And do you expect that in the absence of something new, we are going to see something dramatic again reappear on the market over the next uh, you know as we get close to year end? Yeah. So there's there's a couple of things. Let's talk about repo first, and then we can sure. go to the bill purchases. You know, fundamentally, the issue is that the repo operations that the Fed is doing. In technical lingo, it's done on a tri-party basis, so it cannot be netted. So that's how you get to the to the balance sheet problems. People say that the Fed should turn this repo facility into a, I mean, it's a standing repo facility right. effectively anyway, but I think what they really mean is that they need to make, the Fed needs to make this repo facility nettable. I think that that will never happen. Hmm. It will never happen because the Fed, just by its DNA, they like they like to be super senior in their dealings. And there is no way that the Fed is ever going to lend into FICC, the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation. You know, A, they are not going to lend into the clearing corporate, the, into the clearing house and be a peri passu lender alongside everyone else. It's just not the way they do things. Two, if they were to do things uh, in a super senior way, they would basically uh, upset everyone in the clearing house because everybody just got subordinated to the largest mm. lender in the, in the clearing house. So I think it's either the Fed who's not going to do it because they're not comfortable with it or they will do it in a way which is just going to set the stage for a, for a massive coordination problem and you know just mm. upsetting the governance of the fixed income clearing corporation which again is is the is the central clearing house for for repo transactions. Uh, not to mention other things like you know with the with this growth of sponsored repo there is now as we speak about 25 hedge funds that now have access to FICC. So are we really going to go into a regime where hedge funds can put collateral into the clearinghouse and the, and the, and the Fed effectively on the margin is going to fund all that? So probably not. You know, right. I don't think that we should go down that path. So that's one thing that one thing they could do, but they will never do really. Um, the second thing they could do is to open up this facility for banks as well as dealers. So this is a very important distinction. At the moment, so non-primary dealers. Well, uh, no. So, at the moment, it's the primary dealers that have access to this facility, but the banks do not. Okay, so just to, just hmm. to give you a concrete example, let's say J.P. Morgan Securities is a primary dealer has access to the repo facility. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Hmm. the depository does not. So now, if you go back to the earlier conversation we had. Dealers got backed up with treasuries. They needed to get that funding in the repo market. And the banks, the bank portfolios were the marginal lenders in the repo market. Okay, so, and the reason why the, the, the money dried up in the repo market on the margin is because the banks hit their lowest level right. of reserves they need to hold. So they stopped lending despite the fact that they have all those reserves. You just can't go below it because you would be breaching your regulations. So what you could do is you could open up this facility for banks and 
the chief regulator, who is Randall Quarles uh, in the Fed, uh, would have to give a speech saying, we are fine with large banks to have all bonds, HQLA portfolios. This, you know, hundred odd billion dollars that is sitting at each of the large banks HQLA portfolio can be spent to the last penny. It's okay for these largest banks to have bonds only in their HQLA portfolio because the Fed stands ready with a repo facility to turn those bonds into cash when intraday liquidity needs arise. And if there is a resolution scenario where the bank has to be wound down and, um, you know, we will take those treasuries, give money in return, and let that money pay out its creditors and wind down in an orderly fashion. If that speech were to happen, and if that change to the philosophy with which the regulator would like to see the banks run their liquidity portfolio happens, and the banks get access to the repo facility, then you basically free up uh, easily five to six hundred billion dollars of reserves. And that's five to six hundred billion dollars of extra money that can go into the treasury market and it can go into the repo market. Is that going to happen? Probably not, because you are not going to change the philosophy with which you run these liquidity portfolios just to get through this year end turn that's coming up. A third thing you could do is you could put a footnote on the on the repo facility page of the New York Fed's website saying year end is shaping up to be a very bad event. Let's just be clear that whatever money you will take from this facility going into that turn is going to be nettable. So from a regulatory perspective, you're just not going to have to count that in your leverage ratio and, mm. and all these things. So, you know, if I'm a dealer and I go to this facility, I take 50 billion and I pass it on. I mean, the Fed knows exactly how much I took and it knows exactly how much balance sheet to ignore from my calculation. Is that going to happen? I don't know. I mean, a couple of the dealers that are primary dealers run their repo books out of branches. Those branches roll up to the holding company in their respective countries for reporting purposes. So can the Fed guarantee that the French regulator and the Japanese regulator is going to have the same view on what's nettable and what's nettable? I don't know. So I think it's kind of a, a, a coordination problem. So I don't think that any of those things will happen. And if none of these things happen, you basically set the stage for something quite ugly happening around the year and turn because it's not going to be just a liquidity problem, right? The people are not going to have the balance sheet to take the liquidity that the Fed is trying to put into the system. And the market can really get seized up. So if you thought September was bad, oh man, December can get even worse. But then again, you know, you see headlines, uh, Treasury Secretary is looking into yeah. ways of dealings you know with some of the regs and uh, maybe some changes coming from the uh, regulatory side you just don't know you know so if something big is going to come then year end is less of an issue if if none of those things will come year end is an issue right so you can imagine that any tweaking of the existing regulation like there's an optics problem there which is that yes. a bunch of people will say that you're basically rolling back bank regulation um and in fact, we've seen, you know, people like Elizabeth Warren actually <laughs> start talking about repo markets yes. and uh, what Jamie Dimon over at JP Morgan was saying. I have one more question, and you sort of alluded to it just then, but um, we've been talking about the repo market sort of in isolation, um, although, as you say, it is a very, very big deal for markets overall. But is there a specific scenario in which 
a, a gumming up in repo, another bout of repo madness, maybe one that's worse at the year end. Is there a scenario in which that impacts risk asset exposure at the primary dealers or the banks or big market participants as well? Oh, definitely, definitely. In fact, in fact, you've seen a micro tremor in uh, in September, and you know it's it's hard to see it, but you know if you if you talk to uh, to the equity desk uh, at a dealer, they will tell you that this happened. So what happened in, um, in September when repo blew out, the equities that the street was the most long in sold off and the equities that the street was most short in rallied. So what that tells you is that the balance sheet that the equity derivatives desks and you know cash equity desks are providing to the street, the longs were trimmed because there was no balance sheet for them. And the shorts were trimmed and because there was no balance sheet for them, right? So that's what caused those moves. And what happened was that, you know, at some dealers, and it's not all dealers work like this, but there are some dealers where equity derivatives and FX forwards and repo basically rolls up to a single person. So you shift equity across these businesses based on where the spreads are the richest. So in September, when repo blew out, there were some dealers that took balance sheet away from equity derivatives and the FX desk and moved it to the repo desk because you wanted to harvest those widespreads to the extent possible. And as you moved that equity, as you moved that equity and you took balance sheet from equities away, there was an impact on equity markets. The reason why this didn't get out of hand and it didn't yeah. start to impact more names and didn't last for longer is because the Fed stepped in, started to lend in the repo market uh, and the repo market calmed down. So whatever equity you shifted there went back to, to the equity right. desk. So again, if this thing persists, and you know this is just a spillover into risk assets, but uh, if this thing persists, remember that repo is how you get to live to fight another day. If you have to fund at 10% for a day, another day, and a third day, it can become existential yeah. to the point where you end up with headlines in newspapers, you know, front page. So that can also spill over into risk assets. So I think, I think there is a very real chance uh, that if we don't have a better set of pipes from the Fed and a more aggressive QE, uh, then you have a very, very problematic year in turn. You just opened up the, uh, and we, can, we don't have time to go there because you just opened up the most controversial Pandora's box of whether this should even count as, whether this is QE or not QE. And I feel like, we could do a whole separate discussion on that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we have the time, but I think that was a great, leaving us with that potentially gloomy note of maybe a bigger uh, repo madness coming in December and one that potentially spills over into uh, risk assets, something to, uh, I wouldn't exactly say look forward to, but something for everyone to pay attention to. to be aware of. And I think after this discussion, uh, hopefully people have a uh, much deeper understanding of what's really going on. So uh, Zoltan, it's so great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks, Zoltan. That was so good. Joe, you know what I love about that conversation is that Zoltan sort of brings these big picture uh, theoretical approaches to everything that we've just seen in the repo market. But he also gives you the sort of technical 
behind the scenes look with what yeah. is actually happening at some of these desks and the primary dealers. So I really like that. No, I think this is incredibly important. And it's kind of touched on what we talked about last time, but in a more uh, specific way that it's easy to say, look at some charts and say, oh, this bank should have excess reserves and this is just a plumbing issue and so forth. But then you get into these very specific scenarios in which people who are running uh, portfolios or people who have to figure out how they're going to provision their own liquidity may move money or may decide to move money from one activity to another. And it's uh, it's very real world. It's not just uh, a right. series of cells on a spreadsheet that should, uh, should uh, behave in some predictable pattern. Right. Well, I also think, you know, people hear money markets and repo madness and they think this was a really technical issue in the plumbing of the financial system, as people always put it. But actually, a lot of it is behavioral sort of on both sides. So you have uh, people who, for instance, don't want to access the discount window uh, because it seemed to be a bad thing post-crisis. Uh, and then on the regulatory and political side, you have people who probably are unwilling to really tackle this issue because of the optics involved, right? You don't want to be seen to be bailing yes. out banks or rolling back financial regulation even though, uh, you know, logically, there seems to be something slightly off with the system. Or even as he described the Fed's own posture of uh, not wanting to be a subordinate or uh, other entities that want to lend into this market, not wanting to compete with the Federal Reserve, all kinds of questions that, again, on paper or on Twitter, someone might be able to, oh, the Fed just needs to do X, set up a standing repo facility. Why haven't they done that already? I thought I learned a lot from that conversation about why it's not uh, not quite so simple as just setting up a, uh, a new desk where anyone can swap uh, treasuries for reserves and have the liquidity they need for regulators. Yes, indeed. And now, of course, uh, we'll all be watching out for what happens at the year end if we weren't doing so already. So uh, we'll have to have Zoltan back on in the new year, too. Yeah, I actually thought that wasn't I thought I was like, oh, OK, they're never going to let this happen again because we saw this. We know that the year end is already stressful. So I'm uh, I'm a little disconcerted about how concerned uh, Zoltan is for the year. And one other point that I really liked, and I think it's uh, to get the language across here and this idea and he used the term several times tokens to describe reserves. And it's a good reminder that money, while they may, you know, there are many different forms of the dollar and they basically trade it one to one all the time, they're not completely fungible. Right. And so you think about a casino uh, and you have a dollar and you have a one dollar uh, token or a token worth one dollar. And in theory, you know, they're pegged perfectly and they always trade, but it doesn't mean you can't have an issue or that the poker players who want to leave wouldn't be really upset if there was some issue with just the mechanics of the conversion. Even if, say, the casino owner had plenty of money and they could make good for everyone, you could get these sort of very technical, angry situations, stressful moments if there were a token shortage or something else. And that really sort of speaks to the issue that there are all these different forms of the dollar but if there's a shortage of one, you could still have uh, – or if there's a temporary shortage in the provision of one, you could still have uh, these issues. So I think the the language he used there is uh, extremely helpful in that understanding. Yeah, it's sort of like um, 
I guess, liquidity, liquidity everywhere, but not a drop to drink kind of thing, right? The system's awash in liquidity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can move it from one entity right. to the other. So if you have, if your regulator wants you to have one very specific types of type of liquidity, because again, treasury bills three months are among the most liquid safest, most valuable assets in the world. And if even they're not good enough under certain sort of regulatory demands, you get these bizarre situations in which highly liquid, well-capitalized banks could still find themselves uh, with some sort of shortfall. Yes, indeed. All right. Again, uh, something for us to uh, watch out for going into the year end. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter at Laura M. Carlson. And all the Bloomberg podcasts, check them out at the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.